Well, we're ready to begin Ruth this morning, our class in Ruth. And we have just uh, been enjoying the really the introduction to these different individuals as we encounter them. And uh, we've seen uh, Elimelech, who came and went rather quickly. We saw the, uh, Naomi, uh, and then the two sons and two daughters, daughters-in-law. And now we're at the end of chapter 1, and we've just seen the exchange between Naomi and Ruth, and we're ready to move on uh, from that exchange. But before we do, let's take just a few seconds for our spiritual preparation. That's an opportunity for either confession of sins or simply relaxing and uh, letting the pressures of the day sort of be put in the back of your mind or off to the side so you can concentrate on the Word of God. So let's take a few seconds, bow our heads in prayer, and then I'll open us in prayer. Dearly Father, we're thankful for the experiences of Ruth and Naomi, and we're thankful that God the Holy Spirit has recorded these events for us. We pray as we study these uh, last few verses in chapter 1 that we'll understand what God the Holy Spirit has preserved for us here these many years and preserved for us so that we will learn the lessons, not so that we will be judgmental or um, be in awe or even maybe even uh, surprised or disappointed at what we see here, but that in studying these events, in reading the words from the original language, that we will understand what you have in store for us and for our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we have just in Ruth 18, and I think it was in verse 18 that we stopped last time, that we came to a screeching halt, uh, even though we wanted to go on. But in verse 18, we saw that Ruth has been able to speak to Naomi about her intentions. And we saw that it is a, a wonderful poem, Hebrew poem, that apparently... Ruth was able to uh, present to Naomi at this time. And we saw that in her response to Naomi, she really silences Naomi's resistance because Naomi was sending her back to her people and to her gods. But Naomi says, they are no longer my people and they are no longer my gods. But your people and your God are my future. And apparently this is something that Naomi had not considered. And it's so revealing to her that we're told that she stops speaking. She just stops, ceases to speak. She's silent. And that's what we see in verse 18. When she, Naomi, saw that she, Ruth, was determined to go with her, Naomi, she, Naomi, stopped speaking to her, Ruth. And once we get all the pronouns sorted out, we finally understand that 
Okay, end of conversation, and Ruth is still there. Orpah has departed, but Ruth is still with her. So, we now begin verse 19. And that's not as much of an introduction as I might like, but we have just a few things to cover in verses 19, 20, 21, and I honestly hope to get to 22. But this is, there's many things to, to be seen here. Verse 19 begins, Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And if we were uh, portraying this, uh, this passage, in as we've talked before, in maybe a theater production, or at least visualizing it uh, ourselves, I think verse 19 begins really at the end of verse 18. And what I mean by that is I think this is an unfortunate verse break. Because she stops to speak, and the two of them then continue to Bethlehem. There is a significance, there's a difference between what's happening in 18 and 19. But then, when we get to the next word, or the next phrase in the Hebrew, it says, and it happened, or and it came about. So what we really have here is a break. We have a break between these two sentences. And I think that 19 sort of closes the scene, if we have scenes here, uh, of Naomi and Ruth speaking. There's silence, and then they turn and they walk towards Jerusalem, or towards Bethlehem. But the next scene is completely different, because we're no longer in Moab. We have a complete change, not only of scenes, but really a change of circumstances because we're leaving Moab. And this is an interesting break here. And there's probably many things I could say, but we're leaving Moab. We're leaving the area where Naomi has had this heartbreak with the loss of her husband, the loss of her sons, the parting, attempted parting with Ruth, but the parting of Orpah. And now she returns, and that's the word we've been seeing all through this passage, we have a return to Israel. And we're no longer in Moab. We're no longer part of that part of their lives where they departed God's will, abandoned Him and their country, their fellow countrymen, and everything that was near and dear to their lives. And now, the next phrase, and it comes to pass. And that's how this this begins. And so, now the two of them, and the word is walked. Uh, we use the word went, and that's fine. But the two of them walked. And so, it portrays something more, because when we just see, and the two went, well, how did they go? Well, they can go in many different ways. But it's really, this is just walking. And so, the idea is, here the two of them are. They're just walking together. And this is not the same, but it's the idea of... Uh, Abraham and Isaac going up the hill. Well, they go up the hill. No, they don't go up the hill. They walk together up the hill. And there's more significance to some of these words. And so here we see them. How did they go? Well, you know, they didn't go on a, uh, a cart and they didn't go on, they weren't riding on donkeys. There wasn't uh, public transportation. It says, and they walked. And so the two of them are now walking together. And the way we ended last class was asking what was happening. You know, what's happening between the two of them as they walk? What is happening here? We're really not told. 
And it says, And the two of them walked until they came to Bethlehem. And remember that Bethlehem, Bethlehem, means the house of bread. So this is the house of bread. Our Lord was born in this town and He would later be called the bread of life. There's just a lot of sort of symbolism here with these words and understanding them. Uh, They're returning. It doesn't say they just returned to Israel. They didn't return to a particular area of the country, to Judah. I mean, we could have used other words here, but we return to Bethlehem. We're returning to the house of bread. They had left the house of bread for Moab many many years before. And so, and it occurred, and it happened. So here we have this conjunction, as I said, introducing a new scene. We're no longer on the road, but now we're in the city of Bethlehem. And so we would now picture this new scene There are people around us. There are uh, houses. We're in the city. They may even be near a market. We don't know. Probably near a market because there's going to be a lot of people suddenly that are excited to see them. So the scenes change. I mean, this is a completely dramatic change of scenes. You know, I don't know how the music would necessarily work in this section, but we're on an abandoned road in Moab. And suddenly we're in a very lively scene in Bethlehem. And it happened, and they came to Bethlehem. And they walked, really, to Bethlehem. Then all the city was excited, was stirred to see them. And the, the word here in Hebrew is a wonderful word. It's the word... Uh, and it's... Hmm. H-U-M. H-U-M. This is the first consonant. This is the, the vowel that goes with it. And then the end one, whom. And the whole city whoms. Almost, and it's a, a sort of an onomopoetic word. It's a buzz. It's humming. And of course, the way it comes across, hmm. That's, it relates to us what is actually happening just by saying the word. And so, there they're humming. They're, there's a buzz here. And at this point, we don't know exactly where... You know, I'm going to kind of pull the, this last scene together here. We don't know where the, where the three women, Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth, had stopped to talk, but it was probably in Moab. We're pretty sure it was in Moab. Uh, we just don't have that information. More than likely now, or to, but now, Ruth and Naomi have continued into Israel along the road to Bethlehem. And as I said before, in order to probably set this next scene for Naomi to do her justice, we need to ask ourselves, what do we think the conversation may have been like along the road? Was it pleasant? Was there, again, slow realization that Ruth had finally come to a position where she's considering the God of Israel? Maybe even come to faith in God. We don't know for sure. Was Naomi excited about Ruth's revelation that she was not going to follow the gods of Moab but was now accepting of Naomi's God? Is it a happy trip because these two women will not need to part company after all? Because that appeared to be one of the problems. Parting company and there's sorrow and there's hugging and there's kissing goodbye. Is that what's happening here? Maybe do we see Naomi 
slowly getting right with God as she walks back towards Bethlehem. You know, what is happening? And we don't probably know. We're just simply not told. But from what we will read in the next few verses, we can almost certainly and sadly see that Naomi is stewing. She is still focused on her situation. She is stewing in her self-pity, her resentment, and bitterness about the entire situation. That's what's on Naomi's mind. Because while we're not told, by her first remark, we understand her frame of mind. And so none of these other things have happened. It's not a joyful walk. It's not we're going home. It's not, I'm so happy, it's an answer to prayer, that you are now... You know, considering Yahweh, the God of Israel, that we just don't see that. <clears throat> it's highly likely that if anything was said in the trip, the trip to Bethlehem, it was probably not planning for a wonderful future. There was probably no no mention of I can hardly wait to introduce you to my relatives. You know, Ruth is coming with her. You will really enjoy the warmth and the closeness of the Jewish family. You know, we, that's probably not what's being said. Just wait till you see the beautiful hills and the valleys of Bethlehem. She's never been there before. As a matter of fact, the very last point I hope to make is that Naomi may not even know Ruth's there. Ruth didn't leave, but as far as Naomi's concerned, she's probably hardly there. She's not thinking of her. She's not paying any attention to her. She probably hasn't mentioned any of that. So I think none of this is happening. More than likely, instead, if anything, Naomi might warn Ruth that she's made a bad decision, that life is really going to be tough. But we'll see her feelings when we see her first words. Anyhow, the reception is extraordinary. Here we see the reception, and it's... Again, the city is abuzz over them. And the women say, said, is this Naomi? And really all we have is this and then the name Naomi with a, a question with it. So we know it's a question. And I think, is this Naomi is probably a good way to, to say it, although it might be something else. But anyhow, I think, is this Naomi? So the, the reception is ex- extraordinary as... <clears throat> As she's greeted. Now, it doesn't say that she's just greeted. And I think what's interesting here is it doesn't say she's just greeted by her immediate family. It doesn't say she's greeted by the extended family. It doesn't say she's just greeted by her neighbors and friends. This says the entire city is a buzz, is humming, is humming. <clears throat> it says the entire city is stirred up. No doubt Naomi's relatives had heard of the grief that she'd experienced from the death of her husband and also her sons. The husbands and sons would have been welcome, you know, had been well-known relatives to these people. They would have known them before they departed. But now they're back and they're not here. And they must now see the return of a long-missed family member who has suffered so much. So... I, I think we can understand their feeling. Naomi, they've probably heard about the loss of the, uh, the husband and sons, and now she's coming back. And you know they're welcoming her back. And so they're really 
uh, excited about seeing her. We're not told that they're necessarily overjoyed, but they're stirred up. That's the word. And it doesn't have a sense of positive or negative, but I think it, it, it is probably very positive here. They're excited about the return. And we see that there's a very large number of people here. We don't know how many, but at least it says the city is abuzz with their return. They're excited. This probably explains Boaz's awareness also later on of knowing who Naomi and Ruth are when they're introduced to him in chapter 2 because he says he knows who they are. He knows who Naomi is. He knows who Ruth is. And so this probably helps us to explain that. This also tells us it was probably very unusual for a family to pick up and leave Israel like Elimelech and Naomi had done. The people were probably aware of the family situation, and they're certainly excited about the return. Again, the humming is an onomapoetic word that says the city is humming. There's a buzz going on. Now, it's hard to say precisely how they respond, uh, but more than likely it was a joyous occasion with a well-known and loved woman returning. So I'm saying that the the buzz and the the stirring up here doesn't tell us that it was uh, joy, but it probably is. And there's more news. You know, there's more news here. Naomi hasn't just returned, although that's probably the emphasis. It's not just Naomi returning, but she brings home a stranger. One of the brides. Now a widow, of course, but it was one of the brides. A Moabitess, but one of the family now. And, you know, just on the surface, we might not say, well, that doesn't seem to be much. But the, the buzzing here, it says... Uh, and the questioning is probably mostly coming from the women's side of the culture here. And one of, uh, you know, there's, I know there's excitement. I'm trying to gain a good feeling of this for uh, another bride, you know, uh, the birth of a baby and things like that. Those are the relational type things that occur in women's lives that are important to them. And they enjoy this kind of a thing. And so she's bringing home this bride. The last part of the verse verse is attributed to the women of the town. And we can see that because it ends in a theme when it says, uh, And all the city was stirred up over them. And the women said, We have a, a definite indication that this is the women who are saying, Is this Naomi? Is this Naomi? Is this Naomi? So we attribute that, certainly can attribute that to them. And it can be easily seen how this would occur, thank God. Women have this wonderful trait of being excited about friends, new members of their extended families, and as I said, brides, new friends, and things like that. So they exclaim, is this Naomi? And the word, of course, we know, her name means pleasant. Is this Naomi? It has that sense. It means pleasant. Can this be Naomi? Can you see them asking each other when they first heard the news, then asking Naomi when they finally see her? They're excited with her return, as well they should be, for a loved one who has has returned. But Naomi, of course, is not excited. So that's the scene. They're excited. They're happy. They're probably gathering together in groups. Have you heard that Naomi's returned? And she's got Ruth with her. She's got her her daughter-in-law with her. Verse 20. But she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And let me just continue on here. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me. 
I don't, I'm not going to make a big point of this because there's probably, it could be other reasons, but you'll notice that when they say, is this Naomi? And they gather around her. The first thing she doesn't do is, as we've been trained by our parents and everyone else, if there's a stranger there, you introduce the stranger. Let me introduce you to Ruth. We're going to go a long way in this book to try to find any introduction of Ruth to anybody. This is not on Naomi's mind. Ruth is the farthest thing from her mind. There's something else playing on her mind, and we see it immediately. So, verse 20, this tells us that Naomi understands why she was named the way she was. So, she understands what her name means. And we have just kind of been playing with that, saying it appears that that's what the parents thought. Naomi knows what her name means. She goes right to it. She knows her names mean pleasant, and she is so bitter that she makes an issue out of her name. See, these are all little things that need to, need to tell us how sensitive, how hypersensitive she is. I mean, when someone says, Dan, you're back, am I going to say, don't say God judges here. I'm not going to think that. But Naomi does. Naomi is so embittered, she says, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. This is, fair. this is significant. She makes an issue out of her name. Notice she doesn't try to limit her misery or bitterness, but immediately decides she needs to let everyone know how she feels. Every, I mean, this isn't just a small group. It's not later on when she says, you know... It's really kind of ironic that my name is Pleasant. (laughs) This is a public declaration. She's spreading her bitterness around. Remember, we've talked about that people who are bitter do this. A bitter person is not a pleasant person to be around. They can make life miserable for others. They do not want to to feel better. they They don't want to feel better. I'm bitter, and that's the way I want to be. They want others to join them in their bitterness and their misery. Another thought might be worth exploring, and that is that God the Holy Spirit is highlighting this situation, and the relatives are asking, is this Naomi? Is this Naomi? Is this Naomi? You know, is this... And they're probably not thinking the word pleasant, but that's how they remember her leaving. The irony of the situation is that she left Bethlehem at least ten years ago, a very pleasant, because that's how they remember her. A very pleasant, robust, vibrant woman in her prime with her husband and her two children. But now she returns a haggard, destitute, bitter woman. So maybe the question is more, this is Naomi. And you could take it from that phrase, because all we have are the two words, this and Naomi. And it's always translated, is this Naomi? Is this Naomi? Is this Naomi? But it could be translated, this is Naomi? I think, is this Naomi is correct. But... It's, again, it could go either way. Finally, notice her bitterness draws her into sarcasm. Her bitterness draws her into into sarcasm. She does not refer to God as the Lord, Yahweh. That's not how she addresses God here. She says, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, bitter. And we're going to get to the word, well, maybe I better, I think I've put Mara up here before. But it comes from the word... Uh, Mar. Just M-A-R. But she puts 
the uh, uh, the uh, feminine ending to it here. So uh, Mara, which is an A and an H, really. Actually, it's just a a mark because this is an Aleph and we don't pronounce it. It's Mara. She says, don't call me Naomi, call me bitter. And this is definitely the word for bitter. Uh, This word, bitter, is the one... uh, She'll use it again, so I'm going to kind of wait maybe to see it. But we'll see that this is the word that is used in Genesis, or in Exodus, when the Israelites come to the bitter water. So this is our word, definitely the word for bitter. But she doesn't use the word Yahweh. She doesn't say God, not yet. She, she's going to play that card a little bit later. But she says uh, the Almighty. And the word for Almighty here is the word Shaddah. Shaddah. And it's an important word for us to see. And this is a long I, and it can be Shaddai or Shaddai. And I'm just going to leave it like that. Shaddai. You've often heard it used sometimes El, El Shaddai or um, El Shaddai. We bring it over into the English. But the emphasis for the Hebrew is on the end. Shaddai. And it's often translated the Almighty. And I think that's probably a good translation. But it has the sense, um, we really have a difficult time with this word because we're not sure of the etymology. We're not sure of this derivation, exactly uh, what, it, what it meant uh, as it was used there. You know, where does it come from? There are some who feel that it means, first of all, to be strong. And it's possible that that's what it means, to be strong, because there is a Hebrew word that comes from that uh, that word that means to be strong. Also, there's a word in Aramaic that means mountain, which means which would also give us sort of the, the idea of the strength or the uh, dominance here. Uh, we have also the word that means uh, sufficient. And most people, most translators will pick up on the word sufficient, and that's the one they pull in. But it really, even if it means sufficient, it sort of comes from the idea of who God is. And so when we translate it, the Almighty, I think there's probably two other factors here that we can use. And one is that He is the sufficient one, but He is also the sovereign one, because it's the sovereign one who supplies our needs. Uh, the one who is sufficient, the all-sufficient one. In Genesis, we see this word first used in Genesis 17.1. So we see the word first used in Genesis 17.1. And in Genesis 17.1, let's go back to Genesis 17.1. The word is used six times in Genesis, and this is kind of how we pull the meaning. Genesis 17.1 Then Abraham was 99 years old. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, 
I am the Almighty God. So the Lord uses this word. He is the first one to use this word. And when he says, I am the Almighty God, he is referring possibly, again, to our two senses here. Either that I am the sovereign God, I'm the one that's making these decisions, or I'm the one that's supplying. I'm the all-sufficient one, and I'm the one that's supplying the blessings and the provisions here. Now, throughout uh, Genesis, the word is used here with Abraham, it's used with Isaac, it's used with Jacob, it's going to be used with uh, Joseph. We also see it, uh, the, the last time we'll take a look is in 49.25. Let's look at Genesis 49.25. Genesis 49.25. And this is Jacob giving his last words, his really, it's sort of a prophecy, to his sons. And he works his way through his sons. He talks, first of all, about Reuben. You know, Reuben is the oldest son, but he is really proven to be somewhat of a disappointment. Then we have Simeon and Levi are brothers. And there's significance in the other brothers. The others are not lumped together. But when we see this Simeon and Levi are brothers, that tells us, these guys are two peas in a pod. They're really, uh, you know, they're uh, very, very similar. Then we see Judah. We go down through Zebulun. We get to uh, Issachar, Dan, Gad. And then he gets to Joseph. And he deals with Joseph uh, as one, uh, not as two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, but as Joseph. And our passage that we want to see here, 49.25, says... By the, God, uh, by the God of your Father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lie beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your Father. And he goes on. So it's, it's an idea here of blessings, of provisions. And so I think uh, that the words sovereign and sufficiency and blessings... They go together here with the sense of this word, even though we sometimes have a little bit of difficulty in nailing it down precisely into maybe a one-word or a two-word definition. But in Genesis, the word is used, and God is using it. He blesses the patriarchs with fertility and promises, or with fertility and promises numerous descendants. Outside of Genesis, it's continued to use as blessing and protection. So... What we need to see here, I believe, is that we need to understand that Naomi is seeing God as the cause of her misery. She sees Him as the cause of her misery. She sees Him as the immediate source. And she's partially correct. God is causing the events to occur in her life as the sovereign God. The one who supplies all things. He is the one who's causing that to happen. But the type of events are the results of her and of her family's neglect, neglect of, and their straying from God. However, what Naomi cannot see at this point is that God is working them for good. And that's what we see in Romans 8.28. That God is working these events 
for good. She doesn't see that. But anyhow, Naomi says, All my life I've been told our God was gracious. You know, this is her, the inference of what she's saying when she says the Almighty. The sarcasm, I believe. All my life I've been told our God was gracious, benevolent, giving, and supportive. And He would supply all our needs. But that's not true. Not true with me. And I'm, res- I'm making a resentful point of it. Now, we will soon see Naomi in a very different way. I mean, it's going to change here rather quickly. She will again be Naomi. She will be pleasant. And this helps us to see ourselves in her shoes. I mean, we see the whole thing. And we can see Naomi, but we understand the outcome. And hopefully that puts us uh, in a position where we can understand her situation. We all at times fail in the Christian life. And in our failures... We allow the circumstances of life to get the best of us. I mean, it happens to all of us. And that's why I say we cannot be too hard on Naomi. We see the circumstances, we see ourselves, and we become resentful. And then we blame someone else. And who do we normally blame? You know, one of the first things is we usually blame God. God, why do you allow this to happen? I don't understand this. We become distressed, maybe angry, and then usually finally bitter. And then sometimes even depressed because of these situations, because we just kind of continue to walk. The reason God the Holy Spirit places this story in the Word of God, I believe, is so that we will see ourselves and understand that God can take the worst circumstances and turn them into happiness above and beyond what we could ask or think. And that's what we see in Ephesians 3.20. In Ephesians 3.20, I always like to go to some of these passages in the New Testament because we're spending a lot of time in the Old. Well, I can't believe I turned right to it. Ephesians 3.20. Ephesians 3.20 says, and this is the Apostle Paul talking to the Ephesians, and he says to them, he's just been talking about really the fullness of God. And we're going to see the word fullness here again. So this is, plays very well into what I'm trying to teach. Um, He says to them, Now to him, to God, who is able to do exceedingly above, exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think, according to the power that works in us. So here we have a verse that works very well in our situation. We're going to see she's referring to this powerful God, the one who supplies, and she's going to talk about her fullness here in a minute. And we see in Ephesians 3.20 that God is the one who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think according to His power, that power that works in us. And so that would be our passage. Before this very short story is over, and it's taking us a while, but it really is Kind of a short story. But before this story is over, Naomi will be happy and she's going to be very content. She's going to be contented above and beyond her wildest dreams. Not only that, but she will be immortalized in the infallible, eternal Word of God. This is not just some story. This is about Naomi and God has chosen to relate this to us. She'll be immortalized in the infallible and eternal Word of God and in the line of Christ. And how is that for a family? She's lost a family. She's gaining a family. And the family she gains is the central part of human history. Okay. Verse 21. Verse 21 says... 
I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Then she says, of course, why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me. Now we noticed that the two of them went in verse 19. They walked. Well, we have the same word here in verse 20. She says, I went out full. Well, that is, you know, that's true. But in reality, what's happening, and again, try to be visual here, and I, for some reason I'm pretty visual when I, when I read this, is that she's saying, ten years ago I walked out of here and I was full. What am I doing today? I'm walking back. So it's come full circle, she's saying. I walked out and I'm walking back. And now, what's the difference? We don't have a verb here. Well, excuse me, we do have a verb, but we don't have the verb where we would normally see it. In Hebrew, we see the verb first. They always put the verb, the action, if there was action, it came first, and then we would see the subject, and then we would see the object. And, you know, you might say to yourself, actually, I'm doing it this way. They would do it this way. You might say, well, how in the world did they ever know who was doing the action if the verb, if the subject came next? Well, I don't know. But anyhow, that's how they would normally put it. But she doesn't say that. She says, I, full, walked out of here. That's what she says. It wasn't, it's not a casual statement just saying, relating something that, you know, I walked out of here full. She says, I, full, walked out. I mean, if, to translate it right, you can say, and it's okay the way it's translated, I went out full. But the emphasis is on herself. Again, she is really focused on herself. And the next thing is, is full. Does everybody understand that? I was full. The last time you saw me walking out of here. Full. That's what she's saying. I walked out of here, and of course he's referring to the fact that she had a husband and two sons. That's how I left. And empty, and the word here is empty. It means uh, could be meaning absent success or family, but she's of course talking about her family. And again, it means, uh, excuse me, I was full, uh, and then she says, and empty. I'm sure where I got there. I full walked out. And then she starts, and empty, again, we would expect to see a verb here. And she says, and empty I'm returning. But we don't see that. We see the word empty. So she's emphasizing the word empty. And empty, the Lord has caused me to return. Now we see the Lord. Now the Lord has entered the picture. And he's entered the picture with the word empty. Sort of interesting. She now plays that. She invokes the Lord's name. And she doesn't just say, and the Lord has brought me back, or amply has returned. But the word here, shuv, and we've seen the word shuv many times. It's in what we would call the hithil stem. And the hithil stem means he's caused me to come back. And the Lord has caused her to return. She doesn't understand that. See, she's referring to the emptiness. He's caused me to come back empty. But the irony is, is he has caused her to come back. He is the one that caused her to come back. Thank God he caused her to come back. But she doesn't understand that. But it's related in the text here. And again, we see this irony. He has caused me to return. Then we have the question, why do you call me Naomi? Why do you call me pleasant? 
since the Lord, again, first in the order here, we would, we would expect to see the verb, but we don't see the verb. She emphasizes Yahweh again. Since the Lord, and then we have the word has testified. But it's really the word that means to express. But the Lord has, and it has the sense of expressing himself. And I'm going to translate it that way. Since the Lord has expressed himself against me. Since the Lord has expressed himself against me, and I'm going to explain this a little bit later. And then she says, and this God, who is the Almighty, who is the Sovereign One, the Self-Sufficient One, the One who supplies, the One who controls everything, He has afflicted, He has caused evil against me. And it is the word for evil. It's Ra, and it also is in the Hifel stem that means He has caused. He has caused evil against me. I mean, you can't drop this at the Lord's feet any heavier. I mean, it's just a funk. God, the Sovereign One, Yahweh, the God of Israel, we finally play that card, and then the God of Israel who is the Sovereign One, the Self-Sufficient One, the One who supplies and blesses, does all this, He is the One who has caused evil against me. Yeah, she, there's all kinds of emotions here. I don't think that she's necessarily uh, you know, trying to change anybody else's feelings. Or I think it's just somebody says to her, "Is this Naomi?" and it just blows out. Yeah, well, she probably does. But I mean, this is just one of those situations, and I hate to say this. But I think we've probably all been in this situation where we are just, we've allowed something to fester and bother us. And, of course, Naomi, we might say, well, it's quite a bit to bother her. You know, lost her husband, lost her, her, her sons. You know, sometimes for us, it's a lot less. It's just something that somebody said or something that somebody didn't say. Or maybe somebody's late. You know, coming home or whatever it is, and we allow it to bother us, and it festers. And then when somebody walks in and says, "Hello, oh yeah, walk through that door and say hello, huh? That's a very pleasant greeting," you know. And we just and that blows them right back out through the door. We don't even. What's wrong here? You know. But we've all been in this same situation where we've just allowed something, and it's so close to the surface that just a pinprick, and it blows up. And there we are. And that's where she is, I think. She's just very, very bitter. And as I said, she doesn't, in her quiet time, in this, the, uh, the time that she has to herself, walking back from Moab, she doesn't get this straight. She doesn't, she's not able to suppress it. She's not able to control it. She's not able to say, I'm just being angry. I'm just being bitter. I'm just being resentful. This is not good for me. It's not good for anybody. Nothing, nothing good can come of this. She doesn't get a handle on it. Instead, it festers. It stews. It works itself. And that's, that's exactly what God the Holy Spirit, I think, is trying to let us to see here. And that's the same thing that happens to us. When something happens that irritates us, that bothers us, we need to resolve it right away. Get it out of the way. Even if somebody else has wronged us. So what? You know, it's not our job to punish them. It's not our job to be bitter at God. You know, our happiness is dependent upon our relationship with God. It's not dependent upon other people. But Naomi 
explodes here. So, Naomi interrupts the buzz, the humming, the excitement, the stirring here, to give, the pub, to give public vent to her years of frustration and pain. She demands to be called a new name. Again, this is very self-centered and inconsiderate. We'll talk about being inconsiderate a little bit more later on. But it's con- inconsiderate of others. You know, they should not be expected to endure her anger nor should she promote her resentfulness and bitterness towards God in front of them. They're happy to see her, but instead, she wants to pull them into her sinfulness just because she's out of sorts with God. See, everybody else now is involved with my bitterness, my resentfulness. It's not just me. Now everybody can bask in this thing. She uses the personal pronoun I emphatically, as if to imply that she had something to do with the being full. I, full, walked out of here. You know, I have something to do with this, possibly. In contrast to God, who is responsible for her being empty. I walked out with a full compliment in my family, and empty the Lord has caused me to return. And of course, now she uses Yahweh because she wants to emphasize that it's God's fault. Not my fault. How often are we in that situation? It is our fault. God's got broad shoulders here. Then she asks her rhetorical question, which in reality is just that, a rhetorical question. It's not, there's no answer here. She's asking, should I be pleasant? Is there a reason I should be associated with this pleasant name? That's what she's saying. Then she repeats the name Yahweh, but this time puts it in front of the sentence in the verb where the verb normally is. And she says, I was wronged by God, not by just some human being. This was God acting against me. Hmm. Then she once more calls God the self-sufficient one or the sovereign one. So she, she you know, gets the Almighty in there at first, and then she uh, accuses God of two things, and then she comes back and uses the self-sufficient one or the, the sovereign one. The God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills took my men from me, and I was misnamed. Let's call me a name that more closely reflects God's hand in my life. That's what she's saying. Let's get, let's get a more appropriate name here. My parents misnamed me. Again, the verb here is in the Hithel stem, meaning that God caused this evil or this calamity to come against me. So Naomi has had the long walk from Moab to think about her circumstances, and she's been stewing about it the entire time, the entire way. When she arrives, the first person that calls her pleasant, she lets loose as if to say, I'm glad you asked, let's get this straight. The accusations against God are fourfold. First of all, the self-sufficient or the sovereign one, as we could say, has dealt bitterly with me. So God, the self-sufficient or the sovereign one, has dealt bitterly with her. Secondly, the Lord now, again, you know, it's the sovereign, the self-sufficient one here. He's the one that's dealt bitterly. Now it's, secondly, the Lord, Yahweh, she invokes His name, has caused me to be empty. Thirdly, she says that the Lord has expressed Himself against me. So thirdly, the Lord expresses Himself against her. And then finally, she again uses a self-sufficient or sovereign one, has caused calamity to me. He's the one that's supposed to provide blessing and prosperity and fertility and plenty and abundance. But instead, He's caused calamity 
evil to come to be. Once more, there's great irony in her statements. This is the situation. She and her family are net, are in the she and her family are in the house of bread and it really was in the midst of famine. So she says, I was full when I left it. Well, really there was a famine going on. So the irony here is that when she left the house of bread, there was a famine going on. And she says, I left here, I was full. Well, there was a famine going on. And it was in the midst of the famine that she and her family left. But she says, I was full. Her fullness, we have to see here, her fullness is purely temporal, circumstantial, and material. That's what her fullness was. Her fullness was temporal, circumstantial, and material, but not spiritual. So her fullness has nothing to do with God and her spiritual relationship with God. It has everything to do with the temporal things that she had. The situation then changes. She comes back empty. She says, I've come back empty. But does she? She's leaving a land that is outside the plan of God for Israel. She's coming back. You know, she's leaving... Uh, she's, she's leaving a land that's outside the plan of God for Israel. Outside the plan of God would be where the spiritual famine would be, where the spiritual apostasy is. And she's now returning to the house of bread, where God is blessing Israel. So, she actually is leaving the area where she was being disciplined, and where the spiritual apostasy and emptiness is. And she's coming back to God. So she says, I'm coming back empty. But she's really coming back to the fullness of what God is providing for her. She's coming back to God blessing Israel. And in tow, she has Ruth. In tow, she has Ruth who will prove to be fruitful in ways that she cannot imagine. And who also will prove to be the most wonderful blessing of her life. But she describes herself as being empty. Can Naomi see any reason to be thankful? No, she can't see any possible reason. However, she's just about to begin the most glorious days of her life. The most glorious days. She may have thought that her husband and her children were the most glorious days of her life. But they're not. Her most glorious days are ahead of her. And this is why we are told, in everything, give thanks. 1 Thessalonians, let's go back to 1 Thessalonians 5.18. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, we can actually start in 16, because that's a wonderful part, place to start as well. Rejoice always. We're always to be rejoicing, rejoicing in every circumstances, whether it's what we would consider good or, or bad. Praying without ceasing. We're continually in prayer. I think one thing, if we would follow that, if Naomi has followed this, if she's praying, she probably would have gotten to the bottom of her problems by the time she got to Bethlehem, but she's not. So we force God out of our lives and we allow things to fester. Then in 18, in everything, give thanks. 
doesn't say give thanks in everything, but the emphasis is on in everything. That's the emphasis here. In everything, give thanks. Why? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. God's will is for us to give thanks in everything. And of course, Naomi can't read 1 Thessalonians, but we can. So, we can learn from this. So that's 1 Thessalonians 5.18. We also know that we see in James 1.2 that testing comes upon us. And when it does, we should count it joy. We should consider trials, testing, things of that nature, joy. Why, again, because it's God's will for us. One last principle here. And I'm still going to try to get into 22, but one last principle in 21. When we're out of source with God, we are often very cruel to other people. This principle, when we're out of source with God, we are often very cruel to others, to other people. We have seen Naomi is very inconsiderate of those welcoming her back. And they're welcoming her back with open arms. And they're very excited. There appears to be happiness in the city where she, what did she do? She and her family abandoned them 10 years ago. They left. They, they left that place. But they're saying, welcome back, Naomi. Welcome back. But she's very inconsiderate to them. She says, you know, I mean, it's really very snide. Don't call me pleasant. Don't call me pleasant. Change that to something else. And so we see the, uh, the dark side of her, I guess we could say. But she says, but then she goes on to say, I'm empty. Well, who is right there with her? Ruth. Well, how does Ruth feel? I mean, somebody is standing right there with you and say, well, have you seen anybody? No, I haven't seen anybody all day. (laughs) Well, who am I? You know, we ask that question, who am I, chop liver? She says, I'm coming back and I've got nothing. Well, Ruth probably, you know, very humbly says, well, I am a Moabitess, you know, and... And she really didn't want me to come. But Ruth's standing right there. She could have at least said, I've got nothing except this tag-along. She didn't even say that. i got nothing. Naomi says, I've got nothing. No, she has Ruth. She's got Ruth. But Naomi at this moment cares little or nothing for her. And in fact, this is abusive. I mean, she... This is really abusive. I got nothing. She announces to everyone that Ruth either is nothing or means nothing to her. And so again, that last principle. Now let's look at verse 22. Verse 22. So Naomi returned. So Naomi returned. And before I get to 22, let me just talk a little bit about the verse. Because there's some good things in verse 22 too. But anyhow. 22 is actually a transitional verse. And how this would play in you know, our act is kind of interesting in our play. It's a transitional verse that seems to go maybe with chapter 2, with maybe the next verse, what we don't know. But anyhow, it's a transitional verse. It can be seen as a conclusion to chapter 1, or as we might call it, act 1. It could be somewhat of a conclusion. What probably is happening here is maybe the narrator 
you know, is reading something. He reads, okay, as he brings it to a conclusion or as he introduces the next verse. But anyhow, uh, it's a transitional verse. It's a transitional verse as it transitions us into chapter 2 or to act 2. It can also be thought of as a summary or a flashback, preparing the reader or our audience here for act 2. Naomi continues to be the main actor, but Ruth is a rising star and will carry much of the action in Act 2. In the second act, we'll see three scenes consisting of three dialogues. First of all, we're going to have Naomi and Ruth in our first dialogue. Then we'll see Boaz and Ruth, and then Naomi and Ruth. So we're going to see that Ruth now begins... You know, Naomi has been really the center of attention. And now Ruth is going to carry the action in Act 2. So, it's a transitional verse, whether it goes as a flashback, because so Naomi returned, and Ruth, and Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So, we see two things here. We see that sort of the summary and the ending of Act 1, and we see the intro now as we get into Act 2. Well, let me just spend a little time with verse 22. So, so Naomi returned. And the sense here is that she's finally back. And we've been returning, 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 returning. And what we actually see is that she's finally here. So Naomi, Naomi returned. Now, what we also see in the verse, and I'm glad they translated it this way because it should be translated this way, and Ruth... So, Ruth is the very next word, and that's right. She returned, and Ruth, the Moabitess, daughter-in-law, with her. She's with her. She returns, but she's brought with her Ruth. So, there's there's the sense that she's returned, but she has somebody with her. And they've returned from the fields of Moab. And then we begin again, not with the verb, which we would expect, and it's they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And so the emphasis here is on them returning, them returning at a precise time. And March, this would be March, April in our time. March, April on the Western calendars. And this tells us that their arrival could not have been more providential. So even though she says empty, and Ruth is right there, even though she says, you know, woe is me, the Lord has brought her back at the harvest, at the time of the harvest. The Lord has brought them back at precisely the time when the crops are being harvested and the food would be relatively plentiful. The author does something interesting at the end of this chapter, at the end of this act. He repeats information that has been well established at the conclusion of the previous verse. And he seems to indicate that Ruth now is gaining in importance. Ruth is important. He hints at her coming prominence by offering three critical but repetitious pieces of information. So he's going to repeat something for us. He doesn't have to say that. He could have just said, and then they return, they arrive. But he doesn't say that. He says, Ruth, the Moabitess, the daughter-in-law. So we have... Some definite information here that seems to be stressed. First of all, she's a Moabite. That's the first thing that he wants to say. She is a Moabite. Her alien status underlies much of the drama in our story. 
And so he's going to repeat the fact that she is really somewhere below, you know, an average individual. She's not a Jew. She's not an Israelite. She's a Moabitess. And so we see that immediately. Because she's going to, uh, again, her alien status underlies much of the drama in the story because a Moabite in, uh, in an Israelite world could expect little hope of acceptance. Secondly, she is Naomi's daughter-in-law. She's Naomi's daughter-in-law who has been warmed, uh, received very warmly. So we see that Naomi's been received very well, and she's her daughter-in-law. So there's an inference here that she is being well-received. And thirdly, she's accompanied Naomi, and so she slips into the story through accompaniment of the main character. So she's here with Naomi. She slips into the, char- into the story that way. Naomi declares herself empty. But Ruth will be the instrument by which that status changes. In fact, Ruth will be the first to be filled with food, with a husband, and with a son. And so we're going to see a wonderful and dramatic change here in Naomi's life and also in Ruth's life. So God takes what we often see as cursing as the difficult circumstances of life and He fills us with Uh, His goodness and His provisions. And it's just a matter of us finally getting back to His will. And in this particular case, Naomi is now back. And as we start chapter 2, we're going to see that she's back where God wants her to be. She's not where she wants to be or where her husband and her family had been. But she's now back where God wants her to be. And we'll see some dramatic changes. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful that You work in our lives. We all fail. We all have times when we simply go astray, we might say. But you are there, blessing us, not only when we are obedient, but you are truly blessing us when we are disobedient. And those blessings come to us in what seem to be unpleasant ways or unpleasantness, but they truly are blessing as well. And we're thankful for the blessings that Naomi has received that has brought her back to your will. And with her is Ruth. And Ruth, as we will see, is not to be referred to as emptiness, but truly something that will fulfill, that will fill her life and bring wonderful blessing to her. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.